On this episode of the Saltwater Stories, I have an insightful conversation with one of my friends, Carlotta Reeve, project manager for the innovation services business for Hatch Blue. What is this, you might ask? Well, it's a global accelerator, investment, and consultancy company that promotes sustainable aquaculture to help ensure global food security. Think fish and seaweed farming. Now, Carlotta's main focus is to support the growing seaweed sector. Through this episode, you can hear Carlotta's knowledge and passion for seaweed and agriculture in general. Having grown up on a farm in Germany near the Baltic Sea coast and cultivating passions in kite surfing, diving, surfing, and sailing, she's met her match by combining her upbringing and many of her oceanic passions with her role in aquaculture today. She recently set off in the summer of 2022 to Asia, traveling to many rural places in Indonesia, the Philippines, South Korea, Japan, and Malaysia to conduct an infield survey with seaweed farmers, suppliers, and researchers. So on this episode, we really dive into this experience of hers in which she got to interact with seaweed farmers face-to-face, getting to see and be in their living spaces and understand more about their livelihood. We touch on why seaweed farming is growing as a multi-billion dollar industry in the first place, what things seaweed is being used for in our day-to-day lives like toothpaste and milk, the effects of climate change on seaweed farming, how seaweed can be used to help fight against climate change in small but meaningful ways through things like filtration, bioplastics, and so much more. We also touch on the future of fishing through fish farming. I found this conversation to be quite insightful in my end, and I hope you feel the same. Enjoy this episode. Well, hello, Carlotta. Welcome to the Saltwater Stories. I'm so happy and excited to have you on today. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. And for listeners, um, Carlotta and I actually met uh, a couple years back now, um, but it was back in San Jose and Baja. Uh, we met at a pottery night um, when I was there, actually on a surf trip. Now you were living there with your partner, Vicente. Um, but yeah, we met at a pottery night and I just thought you were the, the coolest person with such an amazing um, story and so much travel and what you were doing with your job, which is what we'll you know, definitely get into today. But um, yeah, it's funny how far back it goes. Like, I feel like you meet such cool people in Baja, right? And we were so lucky to re-meet. <laughs> I know. The connection twice already, right? Or three times in total. Yeah, so- that- think it's definitely because I'm just obsessed with going down there and surfing so (laughs) it makes it a little bit easier to kind of cross paths but um but yes we've actually been able to reconnect a few times already which has been special so and now here on the podcast so it's even even more neat um but yeah I'd love to open up with just kind of what you do and so you're a project manager for Hatch Innovation uh, Services and um you know, honestly, with the name, you can't necessarily tell what that even is, but I'll let you maybe take the mic on this one and just kind of tell us what you do and what even Hatch Innovation Services is. Yeah. So Hatch is, or Hatch Innovation Services is a business unit of Hatch Blue, and Hatch Blue is in the aquaculture industry, um, quite known for catalyzing innovation. So we work across the entire aquaculture industry and i'm not sure if i should explain aquaculture at this point um yeah i feel like let's definitely just kind of even touch on like what is aquaculture for sure um 
yeah, for sure. We 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 can farm the ocean, right? We can farm also in in, in freshwater um, systems. And today, already fifty percent of of global seaweed demand is coming from aquaculture. So it plays quite a crucial role in the global food system. Um, will play a major role going forward, of course, uh, to supply proteins to the growing population. And this is just what the company um, is pretty mission-driven about, that we want to make um, aquaculture sustainable. Uh, we want to, with it, um, improve the ocean ecosystems because essentially if we can farm seafood in a sustainable way, um, then it takes a lot of pressure, of course, of, of the natural um, ocean ecosystems. And there's a lot that can be done across so many species. And my particular role at Hatch, Hatch Blue, is working at Hatch Innovation Services, which is the consultancy arm of Hatch Blue. Um, and working especially with low trophic aquaculture species, which is all species that um, don't need to be fed. Um, you, you all probably love oysters and other types of shellfish. Um, then there's seaweed, um, which, which is my main passion um, and where I've been doing a lot of work recently. Um, and beyond our consultancy services, which we provide to corporates, governments, um, investors. We also invest ourselves in aquaculture innovation. Um, so we are a typical uh, venture capitalist and we also have acceleration and incubation programs for entrepreneurs just um, to support innovation in the aquaculture space. And then we have a media platform, which is called The Fish Side, which is the largest English speaking aquaculture news outlet, so to say. So very synergetic business lines and a very awesome team um, that is very mission driven and, and working pretty global with this. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And it's definitely, I think, a really important time to be working on this type of work with aquaculture, uh, especially as we're kind of getting into more climate change and, you know, ecosystems are being affected. Um, yeah. How is that role in regards to, you know, we're seeing temperatures rising in the sea, we're seeing acidification and what's the kind of benefit, I guess, because you even highlighted is that, you know, by having this ability to farm the sea, I think in a way you're kind of creating it um, in certain pockets and certain areas. So we're not necessarily extracting from what's already there, but we're starting to essentially create, you know, especially with seaweed or fish. Um yeah, what are the benefits in regards to just having aquaculture and in various aspects for climate? Uh, what's going on with the climate change currently? Definitely, there are several. So first of all, with aquaculture, right, we learn, and this is very much based on the awesome work all sorts of research institutes are doing around the world. We're learning how to close life cycles of species, important species, and of course there's unlimited species in the ocean, but but definitely of the main um, commercial species that we also have in the in the seafood demand today. We learn how to close the life cycle and also with it, um, there's, for example, reforestation uh, projects or repopulation projects um, of threatened species that can be 
carried out in combination with aquaculture, which is, I think, um, very interesting to to sustain biodiversity and in our ocean ecosystems. But also from the entire farming perspective, um, I'm very excited about the potential to actually balance the ocean health or the the the, the yeah quality um, of of the ocean chemistry. And this is particularly based on on low trophic species, as extractive seaweed species or shellfish species, um, which take excess nutrients um, out of for example, very uh, eutrophic, very nutrient-heavy um, coastal ecosystems where you have a dense population, a lot of agricultural runoff. Um, if we put in those farm systems, they basically work as the biofilter, as a natural mm. filtration system and can take up those excess nutrients and therefore balance um, the the pH, the, the acidity of, of the ocean, um, because this is basically their natural role um anyways and you probably all heard a bit about um the carbon uptake potential of of seaweed of kelp forest of course um so there more and more um farming can also play a role and and yeah have a potential to at least um have some sort of balancing impact i guess on on this very fast changing world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, that's so kind of brilliant to to know that that's this, an option in regards to choosing the right species of seaweed and putting it in the places that might need it for kind of that filtration, that natural filtration system that it has. I'm curious only because of course I'm in San Diego and we have a lot of the, the kelp forests. Um, and there's, I'm sure just so many species of seaweed, but you know, I, and, you know, granted, I don't know as much on the science of this is mostly from what I hear from other surfers or things and people that um, are a lot more in the science of this field. But, you know, as we're getting warmer waters, like at least for kelp, it's not conducive. So are we, is there a certain kind of species of seaweed that would be able to kind of thrive as the temperatures are getting warmer? And could you start to kind of, you know, like you said, utilize them in, in that way because they can handle the rise in temperature in the sea or are we kind of seaweed like kelp kind of has to have a certain range for temperature wise they definitely have to have a certain range of, of temperature rise and i also um know for a fact that the the predominant species macrocystis in san diego and baja california waters is is very much affected by the rising temperatures and um yeah, every year is kind of the 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 forests get get less and less, which is problematic. Of course, then you will always have some other species that maybe thrive and and have longer seasons. Um, in in the context of farming, this is of course uh, an issue. Also, um, I spent a majority of last year in Asia, Asia, where I know that a lot of the farmers complained um, about the shortening cycles and lower yields of their seaweed crops, which is a big issue. And then it's, 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 I don't know, funny that in Western media, seaweed is perceived as like a, um, an opportunity to 
to balance out those climate change effects, but essentially it's also very, very much affected, of course, by by climate change, as you say, by the water warming waters. But since there's like 12,000 species, um, I'm sure there's always some sort of species that can can maybe resist those warming temperatures or thrive in in those new conditions. That's the evolution, I guess, of our mothers. <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of determining and kind of being able to adapt and shift um, with science in tow. Now, I'm curious because um, you, you, you were just mentioning your trip in Asia, which was last year um, in 2022. Um, you know, so you set off to conduct an in-field survey, um, and it was with seaweed farmers, processors, input suppliers, researchers um, across the major seaweed producing regions globally, which is essentially more or less in Asia, <laughs> I guess I think was reading online. It was about 98% of um, all of the farming for seaweed farming is actually in Asia. And that's where you went. Um, can you speak to that experience and what you saw and maybe what you more or less took away from that experience? Yeah, definitely. Probably the point that I just mentioned that I was okay. surprised how affected um, the seaweed production there is by the climate change effects um, and, and the warming waters, um, how much these farmers actually struggle um, with, with the changing conditions, but also how fast such a solid industry has developed there in the past 50 years. Um, I mean, that's pretty if we, if we compare to right, the agricultural uh, development evolution it's it's insane how from kind of the first farm in the 70s to to now uh, 36 million tons of wet weight production um it's just massive and i've seen massive farms there i've also seen very small farms and smallholder farmers and um we always kind of have to decide or differentiate between temperate seaweed species in South in East Asia, so South Korea, Japan, and China. This is a very different industry than what we see in Southeast Asia, where you have tropical seaweed species, and it's primarily based on smallholder farmers, family farmers. Um, in the Philippines, it's 200,000 families that are primarily depending on seaweed as their primary source of livelihood. And there I've met all these farmers and heard their stories and for me a major 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 takeaway is this potential of development of economic prosperity for these very very remote coastal communities because i'd really travel to places that are far from any tourism sector in the philippines and malaysia and indonesia but and there's no other basically economic um, livelihood opportunity except fishing, but the artisanal fishing is, of course, also super limited or getting more and more limited. And for those, the dependency of seaweed um, and, and what has seaweed brought to those coastal communities has been incredible to see in terms of infrastructure, in terms of um, possibilities to send kids to school. I mean, most of the farmers I talked to, they had barely primary school education, but mm. thanks to a consequent income throughout the entire year, they could now send their kids to like university 
in cities far away, which is, I mean, within one generation, such a huge, huge jump. And and this is incredible to see. And I'd hope to see this for many more coastal communities and and or marginalized coastal communities in developing countries. Wow, that's that is really big and a beautiful kind of thing to come out of seaweed farming, and you got to see that. Um you know, upfront and personal, you got to experience that with the people, which I guess in a lot of ways would be very unique experience and not a lot of people get to do that. So now something that I, that struck me from what you're saying, cause this has only really been happening over the last 50 years. Is that right? So how is this, you know, cause I was thinking in regards to seaweed farming, especially if we're in really remote places within Asia. So is there any kind of like ancient traditional kind of ways of farming seaweed or is this all been like did how did this even come about how did anybody even know how to farm in these areas or did people come in and explain and say hey we're going to do this thing called seaweed farming do you want to be a part of it yeah how did that even get to these places or was there any kind of ancient traditional kind of practices within it not so much um there again we have to see because it's very different pathways for the temperate and the tropical seaweeds so in East Asia, the temperate seaweed species, so that's the kelp that you also have in, in San Diego, basically, uh, these types of seaweed at least, yeah. they have always been in the cuisine and the gastronomy or in the, how do you call it, the um, food, food, right? culture, food, food culture of, yeah. of, of the Japanese, of, of the Chinese, of the South Korean, right? So they played a huge role. And with a growing population there and, and more demand for seaweed as their food, they just realized, okay, we need to start farming it. So um, the yeah, research institutes together with, with actually fishery associations or the fishery communities, they developed basically the farming um, systems, the farming technology around it, because you also need hatcheries and um, they are more complex um, species in a sense with their life cycle. So that has all been based on a market pull because there was already a market there. And then it was basically mm. a plug play situation to just, um, instead of wild harvesting seaweed, replace it with farm seaweed. Now in the tropical seaweed species, it's very different because these are red seaweeds primarily, and they are not they are not typically being eaten by the people, um, nor in that region nor elsewhere. But with the rise of basically industrial food production, where you use um, kind of binding agents, carrageenans, agar-agar, alginate, um, they needed to come from somewhere and they were always used uh, or based on wild harvesting always uh, also but um, now they needed to be produced farmed at scale to actually supply this 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 rising demand for uh, for these gelling binding agents um, which you now have in all your milk products and all your toothpaste um, those are the e-numbers um, and there it was very much corporations thinking, okay, this is a seaweed species that grows in the Philippines, labor costs are, are low, it's pro there's a potential to farm. So 
um, it was basically showing local communities how to farm it and then um, buying that seaweed off them. So it was made very much driven by a um, kind of uh, corporations from actually elsewhere, from Denmark, from from Canada, um, from the US to build up those supply chains, which are now massive and in yeah. everyday food products. <laughs> I know that's, I think that's really funny because I think, you know, maybe a lot of listeners that are listening in, including myself, um, you know, you don't realize the impact or the amount that seaweed is going to be showing up in your life, whether it's if you brush your teeth today, then you use seaweed, um, or if you had milk, you had seaweed. Um, I think that puts it into perspective of, of why, and I think I read this online on your website as well, but the industry's grown to be $16.7 billion industry. So that's not a small number. Um, and that shows, like you said, I guess the demand within the market kind of produced the need to start farming and start to kind of bring um, techniques um, to these places in Asia. Something that strikes for me though, is that I wonder why Asia? Um, and is it, is there just, I hate to say this, but like a pool for cheaper labor in regards to, um, being able to extract and create seaweed. I mean, cause there's so many other places like even South America, um, with so much coastline, but why specifically Asia? And is it, does it have to do with the kind of ability to pay less in order to have the farming done? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting question. And again, with within the temperate seaweed species, it was basically because the market was there, the, the seaweed connoisseurs, the, sure. the yeah, the demand to have seaweed, fresh seaweed and food, because you also don't want to, it's a very perishable product, so you don't want to ship it across the globe. So you rather farm it um, where it's then also consumed. But for those red, those tropical seaweed species that are now used for carrageenan and, and agar agar, um, they are dried so they can be shipped anywhere, but it's definitely very labor intensive. This is a very low tech um, farming process and needs a lot of labor. And, and of course, the labor costs in the Philippines, in Indonesia, and also the quantity, the amount of labor is, is very huge. So um, that is definitely the comparative advantage to, to producing um, those seaweed species there. But I would also say the natural conditions of what we call the coral triangle. So Indonesia, Philippines, and Malaysia are in that coral triangle with immense, um, w uh, immense island, island states, basically a lot of uh, flat water areas because you also um, want to have rather shallow water um, and and very crystal clear water. I mean, it's really perfect to be honest for for these types of seaweed species um, from a from an yeah ecosystem kind of perspective. Um, and these seaweed species, these particular ones, are also very good for this particular carrageenan production. So there's actually several factors, but but of course you're right. It's it's got a lot to do with the labor availability. And it's also interesting because now, for example, South Korea, Japan, and China, they are facing major labor shortages in the seaweed production and the seaweed farming. So mm -hmm. the production there is also declining because they just don't have anyone to farm anymore because um, 
it's also a job, right? And 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 they are already at such a high level um, of of income that they actually working a lot with migrant workers from Southeast Asia, for example. Interesting. So does that mean in a lot of ways, um, would you say that those that are working in the industry, you know, of course it's mostly Asia at this point, but are they getting well paid for what they do then? Um, because there's the shortage and the high demand for the most in, part. Yeah, for sure. Seaweed right now has a, has a pretty high price level. Um, what is a bit complex in the tropical seaweed species um, sector, there's the supply chains are very complex. So you must imagine from like the most remote location far somewhere in Indonesia to get the seaweed to the market, to the processing facilities, there's a lot of medium and middleman involved, right? From the farm gate to, to those processing facilities. So of course, um, there is there is not always a or there's a share um that that stays kind of on on those the medium uh, ways but still the, the farmers in most regions especially while i was there last last august where the prices were at an like all times high since 2007 <laughs> Um, farmers were really happy with the income and, and it also shows what they could do now with the infrastructure and um, the the tuition fees for the kids in school, right? Um, yeah. It's definitely, uh, there, are, there are studies and reports and we also calculated it for a couple of the regions there above the poverty line with a seaweed income, which you wouldn't have with artisanal fishery um, income or, or other sources of livelihood in those rural areas, really. Which is very good. Um, especially that's a good point in comparing it to kind of the artisanal, um, fishing kind of industry that I think a lot of folks within that area have at least not too long ago was their primary means. So, um, that is very good to know. And, um, something that I kind of thought about, and what you said, which is interesting, is because before you had mentioned in regards to kind of the seaweed that is similar to kelp here in San Diego, but that is used more for the food industry that, you know, you don't want it to travel too far. Are we finding that now since, I mean, the bulk of seaweed that's being created is in Asia, but if we're getting it for various different things now, <clears throat> even within the food industry, I'm assuming it's traveling now a lot more. So how is that, how is that working? And is that, you sounded like, like it's a laborious kind of thing to do, but how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the the pretty much major seaweed species that's uh, consumed all over the world and that probably most of you had um, the most touch points with is, is nori, is pyropia. Um, that's what the species groups is called. And this is for sushi. So the... Mm very flat uh, squares yeah. <laughs> of seaweed, right? And I mean, this is, in a sense, if you see it, how it comes out of the water and, and, and when you see it on that, um, in that shape, it's it's definitely processed um, and it's dried uh, to very, very low moisture content. So it, it can travel and it can, um, can be stored for quite some time, which is... Um, always tricky with seaweed because it has such a high moisture content to actually, you know, 
get rid of all the water and, and make it um, storable is typically quite energy intensive if you're not in Southeast yeah. Asia and just put it out to dry. So processing is, is, is today as we are developing seaweed farming in new parts of the world, for example, also in, in the US um, and Europe and Australia and, and New Zealand, it's, it's, it's a big question that entrepreneurs have. How can we actually, um, yeah, store, process it, prime, like do a primary processing step um, that enables us to, uh, to, to then use the seaweed, not just in the very moment, um, because not many eat the seaweed as fresh as, as people in Asia, for example. For sure. And then I guess that would always, you know, start to question about things like using less energy, because if you're going through so much energy just to create, you know, and tr transport, then you might be reducing um, carbon output, essentially, um, especially when we're trying to prevent temperature waters rising to help prevent, you know, lost seaweed, it's almost would be a comical thing if you're using so much energy just to be able to create and store it, um, which I'm assuming would be another kind of added layer of to try to kind of create maybe more seaweed production and farming in areas that would be closer to their, where they're needed. Totally. Yeah. And, and especially since seaweed nowadays uh, is being explored for a lot of new applications, even beyond food, right? We are now talking about um, seaweed-based bioplastics. We're talking about seaweed-based mm. fabrics, um, uh, construction materials, uh, cosmetics. Uh, there's a long list of basically products and applications you could also make out of seaweed. But here, of course, and this is always with the aim to reduce or to have alternatives to fossil fuel-based um, value chains, but of course, here if we, we we yet have to understand actually um, the implications, the footprint of of the entire new supply chains, um, in order to actually claim that they are um, alternatives to to those fossil fuel based products and and much more sustainable. Um, it's an interesting yeah. topic. <laughs> Definitely, and that's I mean I. And that's actually new for me. You mentioned um, just the various purposes beyond food. Uh, you said, so essentially bioplastic um, and using seaweed, is that still in the works in regards to just uh, creating that and forming that? Or is that actually being used in various places? Do you happen to know? Yeah, I do happen to know because we just did a very extensive report on new and emerging market opportunities, including uh, bioplastics. We actually selected the 10 uh, kind of most um, promising markets for market applications. And this was a report um, that will be published by the World Bank in the next month. And here we really did a, a big scoping and 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 um, interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs that are working on those new solutions, but also corporates that are um, and have to implement right those new alternatives into their supply chains. Um, and we talked to other professors and experts from for the more early stage um, solutions. And bioplastics is is an interesting one. Um, we do see a lot of 
interest right now um, on companies that are developing seaweed-based bioplastics. Mm. They are all having very niche applications currently just because the sheer volume that they would need to scale up the production we we currently don't have that um it has a it needs a lot of um, raw seaweed material to produce that and we also have then these seaweed entrepreneurs that are working on those new products and applications they are based in the us or europe or um or countries where we really don't have that seaweed yet available but for example Seaweed-based plastics startups have just won the the Earthshot Prize, the um, Tom Ford uh, Innovation uh, Material Prize. I, I forget what is the names of the prize, but it, <laughs> just <laughs> they um, that they are receiving a lot of attention right now um, in this in this yeah wider media uh, space for for the sustainability. Um, approach that they are taking and bringing to those um, fossil food based industries currently. So it's it's an exciting times, but but we are always a bit more uh, cautious that it's not just a hype, but um, yeah, it it, all, it also needs to kind of work out, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess like you said, I mean, it's 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 you know it starts with an idea, and then you have to actually like ensure it's feasible, and and it's a whole process. I think when you really understand the production of things, and like you said, scaling up, it's it's not a simple task. You have to have a lot of factors in order to do that. But it's exciting to to potentially see that seaweed might be the future in a lot of different kind of components within our our lives. Just you know, besides besides food. <laughs> yeah yeah no that's for sure but it's not going to be the silver bullet it, it's it's not going to replace uh you know all of the all of the yeah current solutions and of course there's also other um, exciting solutions in each of these markets um coming coming online and being developed um but but it is definitely enabling hopefully um, more seaweed farming in, in other parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's the livelihood of so many people that you've met and you can see the uh, direct impact for not only those individuals, but whether it's the the silver bullet, um, which sounds like it probably isn't the sol- silver bullet, but it's definitely going in the right direction um, in regards to just how we should be looking at mm, the world's changing and there's climate change. We have to be able to adapt with it and be able to find multiple solutions, multiple ways that we can kind of approach it, um, which seaweed is a, a part of that. And I'm curious because you, all, you know, in aquaculture also have worked with fish and just curious on the future of um, fish farming and what that looks like in regards to um Gosh, I mean, similar, similar topics really, but in preventing kind of overfishing and what that might be doing and damaging the ecosystems within the ocean, how is that playing a part and where do you see the future of that um, in regards to it? Yeah, that's also a big, big question. (laughs) (laughs) I've probably spent another uh, session on that one. Um, 
But I mean, I I see it similarly playing a huge, huge role, um, of course, primarily for food production purposes, um, not, not, not so much on all these other um, exciting topics. Um, but it isn't it, it's such an important topic, right? We we have such a demand for for protein and it's a healthy protein. So we will really need uh, more fish farming and also um, in in regions such as Africa, uh, where we see most um, uh, population rise um, at the moment. And there's again those freshwater systems. Um, then there's um, the the coastal nearshore systems. And I I do strongly believe, although probably aquaculture had bad bad reputations in in the past uh, in some some regions and in some cases i do strongly believe that with innovation and and this really strong mission driven approach this industry has so so much potential still um and is developing so quickly i mean i see it really on on, on very case specific examples it's incredible that you can now produce um a fish like a salmon already with a feed conversion ratio so the, the the feed that you put in is is less is much less than what you get out as sheer protein and this is incredible this is not being done or is not able to do with any other livestock on land and with this it just has a huge role i think to play going forward and um, we have an office in Norway, which is called um, or Bergen, which is called the the capital or the Silicon Valley of <laughs> um, of salmon, and it's just insane how innovative the industry is there, and and how they're using really alternative sources to uh, create the feed, because that's of course always the the largest and um, strongest environmental impact. Um, where does the feed come from? Um, how is it sourced? In the past, it was soya and fish meal and fish oil. But today, you have algae-derived oils. You have um, insect meals. You have uh, all these new types of proteins that have a much, much more smaller uh, footprint. So I think the speed, how they're innovating, it's just incredible. And also... And, knowing this those companies are so mission driven it's just incredible to see because this industry is also not longer um than 50 years old so it's yeah. uh, super fast in in adapting and 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 moving at a very different pace than agriculture industry because it's it's just not yet so consolidated i would say yeah absolutely that's exciting to kind of see where it goes like you said and Something that struck me as you were talking, though, is that there's so many factors, like you said, it's really important in regards to the feed. Um, and there's all loads of stories, I think, with, you know, farmed fishing that aren't good ones and definitely can stem from, I think, various feeds that being are being used. But from someone that personally, when they're shopping, it feels like there's so many decisions. And it, when you see you go for fish and you see wild versus farm, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, like I see farm and I'm like, ah, like, cause you just think of like all the potential, like you don't know what you're necessarily looking at when you see just the label farm 
it's a farm fish because you're like, well, is it a, an ethically farmed fish or is it not an ethically farmed fish? And I don't know if that's just specifically here in the U.S. or is it just something that like, how do we navigate being as consumers, being able to understand what we're even looking at if we're looking at farmed fish, just as an example, from that kind of ethical standpoint of of maybe what's going on with the fish or do we just have to be basically doing a lot of research before, which hopefully is not the case, but probably. <laughs> hopefully that's, yeah, it, it shouldn't be the task of the consumer, right, to do a lot of research. Um, definitely aquaculture companies need to be much more out there and 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 educating also um the issue i have to be honest in in the us is definitely that there has been a lot of a lot of kind of uh pushback and 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 the media there has a bit um yeah bashed the aquaculture industry for no reason um it is a different story i think um elsewhere and yeah, again, there could be much more said to this, but but I'll just leave you with this. Think about how much you would know about a farmed fish because you know where it is farmed, what it had for food, you you know how how it was killed, how long it took basically to um, uh, to to the supermarket. I mean, this is all traceable today, right? They all have QR codes. And then you have a you have a fished fish, the wild caught fish, and you know nothing. I mean, you you have no idea basically what that fish had eaten throughout its lifetime, which waters it had swam in. I mean, it's much more controlled um, the 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 farmed fish um, sector, and especially nowadays, and especially if you buy from from countries like the U.S., um, uh, Canada. Uh, uh, Europe. I mean, it's it's in Baja even. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 yeah a lot of um, I think a lot of certification, a lot of um, con- control around the entire supply chain, really. So I, I would be less worried eating farm fish than uh, than wild caught. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And something I thought of just now is there is there a way to in regards to microplastics, because of course, when we start to, at least from what I've understood, is that especially with wild fish caught, wild caught fish, um, when we start to understand the amount of plastics that fish might be consuming through microplastics within the ocean, is there a way to control that in a way with farmed fishing? Um, or is that still a, just something that is kind of uncontrollable, a factor, I guess, microplastics? Well, the the thing that um, any seaweed, uh, any sorry, I'm so into seaweed. I've been talking seaweed. <laughs> sorry, any um, any fish farm will will have very rigorous protocols about um, testing their water quality hmm. in, in in the near shore systems. Um, I'm not sure how then in the processing facilities um, the 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 fishes again kind of monitored um the, the actual fillets are they're, they're definitely doing um tests uh, on 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 specific um, parts but i'm i'm not sure if if that would be the case for you know wild fish also um 
I think, yeah, I'm not that much in 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 that discussion currently, but it, I think it, it is a relevant question for both um, yeah. because they are, they are after all both based in, in the ocean. So, yeah. No, it's definitely something to kind of um, mull over and think about. But like you said, um, there's a lot more ability to at least control the environment. So if we're talking about an ethically run fish farming industry, like they'll be testing quality of, of water, um, or we'd hope and assume. Yeah, but it's also more about the quality of, of the feed, right? Because mm. the fish in, in the wild, he has maybe a lot of microplastic because he eats the smaller fishes or whatever is further down the 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 food chain and this is uncontrollable how much uh, plastic uh, microplastic has been in, involved in that but of course if you have um if you have feed <laughs> that you specifically feed uh, that comes from feed mills um that is highly controlled and there's definitely no microplastic in there shouldn't be at least yeah well switching gears a little bit um i would just kind of love to know at least i know a little bit of course but for the listeners what got you into this in the first place good question um <laughs> you need another hour no <laughs> go along way back or no i'll do a short version so i Generally, uh, I'm extremely, extremely passionate about global food supply and how do we ensure, you know, this rising population um, to feed in like, like a sustainable manner going forward in the future. I think you kind of heard that uh, throughout my conversation already that this is always a big topic. Um, probably because I grew up on a farm originally, so I, I grew up in a agricultural business, um, a family farm on the northeast coast of Germany. So producing food has always kind of been on top of my mind. But then I I basically not until I finished university, which had nothing to do with biology or <laughs> aquaculture or um, food production in a sense, um, but I'd always worked in like food tech companies or yeah, organizations that were involved in like the future of food during my studies. But then I actually just randomly also through a podcast, um, heard about the term aquaculture and I was super intrigued. Um, of course, at that time already very much, uh, involved in surfing and um, all types of water sports because I also grew up on the coast um, but on the Baltic Sea course, coast in Germany there's definitely no aquaculture <laughs> um, so so only later I, I, I learned about that concept but what was, was very intrigued um, you know how can we farm the ocean in a sustainable way and then I just um, after university digged into any type of you know, information that I could find. And it was it was also starting to be COVID. So a lot of conferences in the industry were like online. And then I decided instead of studying another master or, or like university degree to learn more about aquaculture, I much rather would get hands-on experience with species that I'm actually very interested in. And this took me to do internships in 
yeah, in random places. In Norway, we actually with a company I'm, I'm with now, but also on the Faroe Islands on a seaweed farm. I mm. think planted the love for seaweed and then um, a land-based shrimp farm in the middle of the mountains in, in, uh, in Europe. So yeah, a lot of unique experiences that kind of looking back now, I can see a red path, but back then it was basically triggered by my curiosity and interest in how this industry can really um, support the growing food needs, protein needs. Mm, that's what a beautiful journey. Started with a podcast and it went from there. I love it. Um, and of course, you know, seaweeds now turned into a bit more of a niche passion for you within this um, aquaculture. Um, so I guess it might seem like an obvious answer, but what's inspiring you right now or where are you feeling the most drive maybe within seaweed, uh, within your role? Oh, that's definitely, I think, to, to understanding how we can translate that knowledge that we have from all these seaweed farmers already in Southeast Asia, how enabling factors have basically allowed an industry to emerge there, how we can translate that now to other coastal communities that have a need to have alternatives to um, to fishery in developing countries. How, how can seaweed farming bring prosperity also to, to those places? And the second one is for sure the biodiversity opportunities that seaweed can bring. I mean, I, I was lucky enough in most of the places that I've been to, including the Faroe Islands, to snorkel and and free dive underneath the seaweed farms and for anyone who's ever had the pleasure also to um, free dive in a health forest i mean you you would know how much life there is and how much um yeah biodiversity how much habitat seaweed can create in, in those ecosystems and i think that is definitely true and possible for farming also so biodiversity is being becoming a huge topic um, also in, in the blue economy. So it's interesting to see how also farmers could, um, you know, get compensated or get encouraged to to sustain that biodiversity because you can't have a monocrop for seaweed really because there's just so much other seaweed and other stuff that's always going to grow on your line, um, at least in, in the temperate seaweed species. Mm. Hey, well, I'm excited to see what you do with all of that. <laughs> and um, this has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. I'm sure the listeners have as well. Um, and thank you so much for your time. This was lovely. Oh, thank you for the invitation, Christine. And can't wait to see you in Baja next. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Saltwater Stories, hosted by me, Christine Kent. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and like, follow, and are subscribed to wherever you're listening in today. If you think there are saltwater stories out there worth sharing on this podcast that I've yet to explore, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on my Instagram at the saltwater stories.